Climate Law Matters, Episode 5, Interview with Professor Sir Dieter Helm. Hello, listener, and welcome back to our podcast, Climate Law Matters, in which we explore the legal developments across different sectors to address the key issue of climate change. I am Steph David, a barrister at 39 Essex Chambers, specialising in environmental and climate change cases. And today, I'm very excited to be joined by Professor Sir Dieter Helm, Professor of Economic Policy at the University of Oxford, who has also sat as an independent chair of the Natural Capital Committee, providing advice to government on the sustainable use of natural capital. Professor Helm, thank you very much for joining me today. To start, can you tell the listener about your background and your expertise in this area? Well, I've been following the climate change debates and indeed the environmental debates for what seems now a very long time. And I'm interested in not just the detail, and particularly the detail of the regulation, the legislation and so on, biodiversity, wider environmental issues, and of course, net zero and climate change itself, but all within the context of how it is that we leave to future citizens an economy which gives them the opportunity to choose how to live their lives. And that means protecting and enhancing assets. And that in turn means, you know, looking after the capital maintenance and so on. Things which privatised utilities, government, etc., singly fail to currently achieve. Picking up first on the net zero growth plan and the energy security plan, to what extent do you think that they have achieved that ultimate objective? Well, governments have always struggled with what's called the energy trilemma, affordability, security supply and net zero. And it's become fashionable to pretend that this set of trade-offs no longer exists. Well, Ukraine, Russia and the brutality of the Russians and what happened in the European gas markets is a wake-up call to everyone. If you don't have security supply, you can forget about being green. So that has to be met. And it's a complete fabrication to imagine that what will be one of the biggest ever transformations of economies, our economy, for example, in the last two or 300 years, can be done with falling prices to customers. So affordability bites home hard. So the question is, when the government pursues one of these three and ignores the other two, just how long? Does its policy survive the test of the first skirmish of the battle that's required? And behind that lies a whole set of ambiguities. You know, what exactly is a carbon emission? What counts in emissions trading? What's a carbon offset? What's the contractual form of these things? How exactly are people bound to carry through the policies that government would like to see delivered. And I expect all of us would like to see to be delivered. How exactly is security supply going to be delivered? Who's responsible for that? Who's liable for that? And then when it comes to the bills, you know, what is the consequence when a substantial number of people simply can't pay the bills? Who picks up the tab? Where's the social tariffs? So there's a huge number of very practical questions which the plan for growth and so on you know, it stays in the stratosphere of generalizations, but I think we haven't really yet started on the detailed implications, the detailed responsibilities, 
and the broader delivery framework that we need to get to where we want to get to. And on energy security, I mean, you know, the idea has always been, well, you know, you could buy the energy anywhere you like. We can buy LNG tankers on the high seas, et cetera, et cetera. Well, yes, provided you're prepared to pay the highest price of the world, which is what we virtually did during the gas crisis. And when you look at net zero, so when you think about security, people say, well, you know, if we've got wind farms or solar, surely we've got our own energy. Well, where are the minerals coming from? Where's the cobalt? Where's the lithium? Where's the nickel? Where's the copper? Where's the rare earths? Where's the refining capacity? Where's the manufacturing capacity? Where are the gigabattery factories, etc.? All of that, what you might call below the waterline issues, seems never to be properly considered when we come to net zero. The emissions associated with those supply chains are, in many cases, really very large, and we've got to deal with those. And the security, when a lot of that comes from Russia and China, is a matter which is just beginning to sink home. Just to pick up on one point, so in terms of security of supply, I have heard you before talk about security of supply from renewables and the fact they don't provide a, a reliable supply. To what extent do you think that these new policies from the government actually addresses that kind of key objective and issue? Well, we want lots of renewables and we're targeted to get 50 gigawatts of offshore wind by 230, uh, Labour Party has even greater ambitions for this. But, you know, Building wind farms is a great thing to do, but there are certain practicalities which turn a wind farm into a coherent part of an energy system, and there are certain questions that come up which have to be addressed. So wind is intermittent, so that means you do need a supply when the wind isn't blowing. Solar is intermittent, so you do need a supply in that dark day in winter and when it's raining and clouding, and particularly at night. These are low-density energy forms. They're geographically dispersed. And if you add those things together, you then need to say, well, if your system is going to be driven heavily by wind, it is going to be intermittent and render everything else intermittent on the system as well, because when the wind blows, we'll use the wind. And, for example, well, we'll turn the nuclear power station off. Anyone thought of an intermittent nuclear power station yet and how that works? Well, that's going to be a reality. And we have to have backup. And right now it's gas. We have more gas on our energy system, electricity system, than anyone else in Europe, partly because we got rid of coal. So how's that backup going to be done? And how are we going to get out of the carbon that the gas has, which we need to back up the system? And then that feeds through to, well, do you think batteries can last for two weeks or three weeks in a cold period of winter? Where does that fit it? Where do the interconnectors from hydro in Norway and in and continental supplies fit into the framework? So what do you have to do? And where's the grid and where's the distribution system? So what you have to do if you want to have 50 gigawatts of wind, and I'm sure we do, is you have to have a system plan. And if you have a system plan, somebody has to be responsible. I hate the expression controlling mind, but someone has to have the architecture in place. And someone has to have the liability of when it goes wrong. So right now we place, you know, obligations of security supply and so on, or regulated network companies and so on and so forth. Well, that doesn't make much sense in this new world. You know, if I get my electricity supply terminated because there isn't enough supply, bluntly, who do I sue? Who's responsible to deliver it to me? And all of that 
is yet to be defined. And that we have to do. Otherwise, we'll end up where we ended up in this great gas crisis. You know, I called it the first net zero energy crisis because it revealed just how exposed we were to the intermittency of wind, tying us to the gas, which tied us to the remarkable outcome that despite only taking 4% of our gas from Russia, we had amongst the most serious hit of the energy price shocks. And that isn't a position which the consumers could sustain. And here we are, the government ended up paying half the electricity bills of several tens of millions of people and many companies as well. Not a sustainable position. Can I ask you one technical question before I move on to a slightly broader question? You refer to low-density energy forms. What exactly do you mean by that? Well, the reason we like oil is that for every barrel of oil, you get an enormous amount of energy out of it. It's high density. Nuclear is even higher density, right? If you look at a, a wind turbine, it's low density dispersed. Put it simply, you need a very large number of wind turbines to equal one gas power station, let alone a nuclear power station. And we have to remember, this isn't like for like. It's no accident the 20th century was the economic transformation of global history ever, from 2 billion to 8 billion people and everything that went with it. Why? Because oil is a fantastically good source of energy and you have to match it with the low carbon technologies to sustain an economy where it's really going to matter because we're going to need electricity for all the digital revolution, all the robots, all the electric cars, and all the economic growth, if we get that as well, and all the heating system as well. And you've got to find that from somewhere, and it's got to be as good as oil. And that's a big challenge. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And just picking up another point that you made earlier about essentially having the infrastructure in place and who's responsible for that infrastructure. I mean, who do you see playing that key role? Is it a matter for Ofgem or some private enterprise? Well, I'm on record as saying I think that both Ofgem and indeed Ofwatch should be closed down. And that's not just because of their performance. It's because I want a system architect for this system and I want system regulation. We're going to have a so-called future system operator taken out of national grid. But what's missing is defining what that does. I had in mind that they would have a plan to get to 235 for the decarbonisation of the power sector, and they would have the responsibility for ensuring it's delivered. It'd be in the public, not the private sector. But they would auction all the stuff that's needed to be done to all and anyone who wants to bid to do it. And in reality, that'll be National Grid, the distribution companies, but lots of other players too coming into the pitch. Now, that is radically different because it not only changes the regulatory framework, it changes the legal position of the regulated utilities because at the moment, the licenses that they have carry these obligations. And I mean, you don't have an obligation if you have a, a license to generate electricity to secure electricity supply. But if you're a network, you have lots and lots of requirements, just like water companies have a license grants. Now, I want to transfer those away. And of course, that means that in this system architecture, system plan, system regulatory model, that's where the liability lies. And that will sharpen minds and coordinate the building of the grids and the distribution networks. And, you know, one of the big failures we've got is 
You know, you can't sort of say, oh, we'll build a bit more of an electricity distribution system or a bit more grid when the demand arises. If you want to do this massive transformation in the space of 12 years for the energy sector, the electricity sector, you've got to build assets in advance of demand. And of course, that contractually and economically is a very risky position for someone to be in. You build the, you know, the runway before the aircraft turn up, if you like. And that needs proper protection. And that needs substantial readdressing of what the guarantee to finance the functions of those assets is going to turn out to be. So that's all there to do. But I think Ofgem is a creature of an asset-sweating, efficiency-driven privatization world where investment was very low. Investment is the driving motivation now, and you need a regulatory system that's going to deliver that. So in terms of where that investment comes from, I mean, how do you see or how do you think it should develop going forward? It's a much neglected question, right? And the reason is quite simple. You know, savings equal investment, okay? Investment is provided by people saving somewhere that they could have spent, you know, down the pub. They could have spent consuming, right? So most countries would do this. They would have savings in the economy. And those savings would be channeled through the financial system to provide the funding for the investment and the financing going forward. Problem, we don't have hardly any savings. Right? So our domestic consumers love living well beyond their means and continue to do so. And any suggestion that, for example, when the guy from the Bank of England said we're poor as a result of COVID, well, obviously we are. Now he's apologised for saying it. It's true, right? But we want to live as if we never had COVID. We want to live as if there was never a financial crisis and we don't want to pay for the pollution we cause. When it comes to the corporate sector, well, much of it is foreign owned now already anyway, but the bits that aren't, there aren't any substantial retained earnings being reinvested. It's true of the water companies, by the way, and the electricity companies as well. I mean, water profits equal dividends, not retained earnings. And then the government's a net disaver. And then we, on our trade balance, we import much more than we export. So on the current account, recently, we were minus 8% of GDP. That is a massive desire to live way beyond our means. So foreigners have to lend us the money to underpin the consumption, which is an unsustainably high level. So when you look forward and think, well, where the hell is the money going to come from for this massive investment? The answer is from abroad. And what we've been doing over the last 10 or 15 years is selling off the family silver. Almost all the major components of the net zero industries are foreign. You know, we are the British workers for the foreign companies because we want to live beyond our means and that's the way our assets get transferred. So are foreigners going to cough up the money on an enormous scale to deliver all this lot? Well, only if they believe they're going to get the interest, the dividends and their money back at the end. Well, 10 million people in this country passed at least one or two of their crucial payments in the last three months, which I think is pretty close to defining what affordability crisis looks like. And if you add up the impact on mortgages and the impact on rents, and you run inflation forward, in my view, at about 5% per annum, and you add up the higher electricity bills and the higher water bills and the higher you know, streaming bills, et cetera, et cetera, you know, are the British consumers, British taxpayers, willing to either pay higher bills for all those foreigners to come along and invest, or are they prepared to vote for higher taxes to pay for it? And I think it doesn't add up. And in the end, if we want to do net zero, 
we are going to have to contribute both to pay for the pollution we're causing and to provide the savings. And that sadly means that the current standard of living is not consistent with doing this massive investment program. And nobody wants, wants to talk about that. It's just assume you just borrow it. You know, the markets will just provide infinite amounts of debt. You know, Canadian pensioners and Australian pensioners will just cough up the money. Really? I suspect that's really not quite so true. And with the big American move on the Inflation Reduction Act and the EU responses, we're looking very much on the sidelines. Do you think that domestic law or regulation could play a role in redirecting where the kind of finance flows end up? So looking at investments from overseas and whether they could be directed into these big kind of infrastructure projects here. If you're a foreign investor in the UK, you might find the market attractive if the investments you make are guaranteed by the government. And that's ultimately what's been going on in the generation side of the market. That's what the regulatory asset bases do for the distribution and transmission systems, et cetera, and utility regulation. So the, the question really comes, you know, at least any investment committee I ever sat on, okay, so what happens when the proverbial hits the fan? Who do I sue and who's ultimately liable for it? And if the answer is, well, it's, you know, blogs and co PLC, you know, that's a very different risk from one saying, well, actually, the regulators are due to ensure that their businesses can finance their functions. That's by statute. And therefore, ultimately, you sue the government and the government has to pay. Then it's sovereign risk and it's sovereign debt. And then you have to work out, well, you know, how good is that? Right. And the way we solve our debt historically in the 70s now, et cetera, is we just have nice high inflation to write it off. And you have an exchange rate effect behind that. And again, if I'm a foreign investor, I want to do my due diligence, always backed up by the fundamental question, am I going to get my money back? And who's going to ultimately stand behind it once the consumers are won't or can't pay or seem unwilling to vote for the taxes that will be necessary to achieve these crucial environmental goals. So you've mentioned about this issue of carbon consumption and the focus so far has really been on carbon production in the UK rather than carbon consumption. I mean, to what extent do you think policy and changes to the law or regulations could assist with addressing that particular issue? Okay, so the objective, I think, should be that we in the UK unilaterally want to stop causing climate change. I think that's what people believe they're doing, right? Well, we're not. Because when we measure net zero, the target is territorial carbon emissions, excluding tracks power station. That's absolutely extraordinary that that's feasible. And indeed, given the requirements about sustainability on tracks, I'm surprised it's even legal, but I'm assuming it is. So we just measure the emissions that come out of our power stations and come out of our cars. We don't measure very well the emissions that come out of the soils or the peats. Just an aside, soil has four times the carbon of the atmosphere, so it really does matter. Okay, And so, I mean, I once explained this to a recent prime minister who will be nameless. But I said, look, if you want to achieve your net zero target and you want to boast a bit more about Britain being the poster child of the net zero world, you know, I'll get your emissions down in a week, quite a lot. And he said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, look, let's just close the steel industry down, the what's left of it. Let's let Brexit finish off the car industry, which apparently it looks to be doing really quite well at the moment, 
right? Let's close the last two fertilizer factories. Let's close INEOS up in Grangemouth, the great petrochemical plant up there. And let's import all the stuff instead. And our emissions will go down. We'll look even better and we'll have made climate change worse. So it doesn't matter where the carbon's emitted. You and I are responsible when we buy and consume stuff which has got carbon intensity within it. And once you start to add back carbon consumption at the numbers, carbon consumption being the only proper measure, and of course add Drax back in, the record looks fundamentally different. And that means that we've got to address imports on the same basis as domestic production. You make a really interesting point in your book, The Net Zero, How We Stop Causing Climate Change, about essentially emissions from seaborne trade and obviously the contribution from international shipping to overall emissions. I just want to, Professor, to what extent do you think the government's consultation on the carbon leakage risk, which essentially my understanding of it is to deal with emissions from production overseas, could deal with this precise issue? Well, a so-called CBAM, a carbon border adjustment mechanism, is the obvious way to do it. And, you know, we have a price on carbon in the UK, our UK ETS, the Europeans have the EU ETS, and there are other restrictions and so on and so forth. Okay, so the way I would have it work is, imagine you're down in Southampton docks and a Chinese ship comes in and the customs official, I mean, you might think they might do it online, but the data situation, the customs is so awful that someone will probably walk down to the boat and say, hello, can I talk to the captain? Could you kindly give me some money for the carbon intensity of the steel that you've just brought in your boat from China, for example? And the captain, I mean, she might say, really, do I have to pay that? Is there any way I can get out of it? And to which the answer should be, well, can you show me a carbon exemption certificate? Because you've applied a similar carbon tax in China to the carbon price we have here. That's a very important point because it means that once you get enough people with one of these mechanisms... Lots of other countries have to introduce carbon pricing, carbon taxes as a result. But anyway, in the end, the Chinese steel pays a carbon price. It puts it on a level playing field with domestic production. And, of course, there's a revenue. And the reason, by the way, why the Chinese would rather have a carbon tax than pay the levy to this customs official is because that would go to the Chinese government. Whereas if you give it to the hapless official on the dockside in a brown paper bag or whatever, that's going to go to the Treasury in the UK. That's the incentive method. Now, as with almost all of this stuff, the EU has already proposed to CBAM, and it's going to happen. And, you know, it has the EU ETS. So we have this notion that we're somehow sovereign, and the Brexit has meant that we can invent our own rules for all this stuff. We're just copying them. Because imagine what our trade with Europe would be like if they had a CBAM and we didn't. Okay, Then we'd be paying all this money at the border and it would be chaos. And you know, it'd be worse than trying to import a car or a chip or something else into the economy. So basically, it's coming. It's absolutely sensible. And pragmatically, you start with the really big polluters that have traded. Steel, aluminium, petrochemicals, cement, stuff like that, right, fertilizers. And you can pluralize it later, but a huge amount of the seaborne carbon trading is taking place in those heavy-duty items. So we just capture it that way. And then we really will stop causing climate change. But for a country which has an insatiable desire to import, 
and clearly provides a lot of imported goods, domestically produced ones, to the extent we produce anything anymore, it's going to be very painful because you and I are going to have to pay a lot more when we go to the supermarket for all that foreign food that we buy because it will have a carbon price embedded within it. In terms of how that then links in with sort of mandatory product standards, do you think that's also a useful tool to account for emissions essentially from overseas? Yes, but the point about standards is that Basically, standards are set in about three or four trading blocks around the world. United States, the EU, Japan, and now China, to a lesser extent so far. So, yes, of course, there'll be standards. And almost all the Brexit regulations are about us adhering to EU standards. So, you know, little Brexit England will be adhering to EU standards on these things. Just as we want to say, look... We don't want hormone-grown beef imported country. We don't want chlorinated chickens. Not that that's a really big problem, but never mind. But we want to lay down. We want welfare standards for animals, right? Well, that's true for all these other things too. And it's not whether there are regulations. There are regulations on almost any commodity that's traded to meet certain minimum standards. It's whose standards. And, you know, the great thing about Brexit sovereignty, they're going to be set by the EU we're going to have to be a, a regulations taker. And for all the take-back control, we're going to have to take their regulations with no say in what they actually are going to be. And even little tweaks like having gene editing and the EU not quite doing that, that opens up a whole set of problems for an economy that's 50 million people and 20-something percent of the world economy to Little England on the side in Brexit land as a rule taker. And it'll be very interesting as who enforces these standards, because we're not, as I understand it, covered by the ECJ and a lot of this stuff, but you know, do the Europeans impose these standards through the Brexit arrangements? And do they get imposed through the EU retained law, which isn't going to be abolished, which is all those directives? Or are they enforced by British courts and that framework? That's way beyond my technical expertise to know how that works, but I can see it could be interesting going forward. In terms of your views on the Climate Change Act, so I know that you have concerns that it's obviously principally focused on territorial emissions. I mean, given obviously there has been a shift in the government's position and there's a requirement now to take into account international aviation, international shipping. I mean, do you think that is a promising develop in terms of addressing kind of climate change issues? I think we have to be clear. It's an EU requirement to take those into account, and so we've got to take them into account. It's another example of being essentially a rule taker. So if you put a CBAM in place, and if you put these international rules in place, what you've done is changed what you're being net zero about from what's legally in the Climate Change Act 208 and the amendment in 219. So these are distinct so you have to ask the question, you know, what would a government have to do to break the law, right? For example, the government's required to either adopt the carbon budgets proposed by the Climate Change Committee or come up with a carbon budget with equivalent effects, a problem that George Osborne discovered was unsolvable for him. Okay, he had to go back to the CCC rules. Well, if the Climate Change Committee starts to write carbon budgets which take account of these things which are beyond territorial emissions, how's that work? I think that's as clear as mud. Mind you, I'd also say, of course, 
there are no penalties for not achieving net zero in 250. <laughs> it's a sort of, we're all, you know, it's largely voted for. Only three MPs, I think, voted against in the original thing. But what do they vote for? The government's going to be fined for not achieving the outcome. And there are all sorts of reasons why they may not achieve the outcome. And, of course, they can change the law between now and then. So really good thing will be an amendment to the Climate Change Act 219, 207 or 208, which changed the definition for which net zero applies. That will be interesting. Thank you, Professor. And that actually leads me to my last question, but you sort of have already answered it. I mean, what do you see as the kind of key legal development or key legal barrier to addressing climate change here? I'm not sure that the fundamental problem is legal. I think the, the fundamental problem goes deeper than that, that what we've done is set a loose legal framework with the Climate Change Act, but never thought through what actually has to happen to achieve it. And because ultimately all the Act really does is say that in 27 years you've got to get to a particular point, Everyone can kind of relax and say, well, we can always do it in 249. We'll have a big jump to get to the last point. And so the constraints aren't really binding. It's true that the carbon budgets are binding, but there aren't any penalties for failing to achieve them either, really. And so I think it's a much deeper political and societal question as to whether we, as the ultimate polluters, dare I say you and me, in what we do, are prepared to pay for the pollution we cause, the polluter pays principle as a central principle, and whether we're prepared to do what it takes to bequeath to the next generation a set of assets, including the climate, including the biodiversity, necessary for them as future citizens to choose how to live their life with the capabilities to do that. We're not doing fixing the potholes in the road. The railways are in a terrible state. The state of our water industry is awful. And the electricity networks, particularly the distribution networks, are not up to the car charging networks and the heat pumps and the solar panels and the various additional stuff that we need. We're not doing this, right? And the question is, what is going to make us do it? And we've been sold a convenient white lie, which is, don't worry about it because it's all going to make you richer. You're going to have cheaper energy, cheapest energy in Europe by 235, all this claptrap. And we therefore are led to believe this is a free ride. It's all going to be easy. It isn't, unfortunately. It's a huge challenge. And that has societal issues about social justice, climate justice. It has fundamental issues about how we live our lives. And it has big implications for our standard of living. You wouldn't fight a war and say, you know what, we're going to lower taxation. You're going to be better off because we're going to build all these tanks. Right? Second World War, you had 98% tax and a capital levy was considered afterwards because you needed to pay for it. And as I would say in that trite way, no free lunches in net zero. This is serious. Thank you very much, Professor Helm. Um, you've given us a lot of food for thought. So thank you for your time. Mm -hmm.